Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are the faithful God. And even as we continue our, our journey through the scriptures, we, we are reminded at every turn that you are the God who proves faithful in all things. Your people fail you. They prove unfaithful. But you are the, the one who is true the one whose word, whose purposes, whose promises never fail. And so, Father, we pray that as we continue our worship, that you will lead us by your faithfulness, lead us in our understanding, lead us in your wisdom, give us insight, enrich us, nourish us, And Father, cause our hearts to be more tightly wed to you. Cause us to trust you more. Cause us to truly own your faithfulness and to have it be manifest in the lives that we live, in the way that we think, in the emotions that fill our hearts and minds, in the disciplines of godliness. May we truly be a faithful people, a people who mirror the faithfulness of our God. So meet us in this time, and Father, as always, I ask that you would meet each one here according to his need, according to his faith, according to your purpose and your grace toward them. And we ask all these things of you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, last time we finished with uh, the book of Genesis, and we saw that that book ends with the people of Israel in exile but in hope. Jacob died. He was taken back to the land of Israel to be buried in the grave of his father and grandfather. And uh, Joseph himself died in, in hope, saying, when you return, when God brings you back to the land, then take my bones with you. And so even Joseph's death testified of that faithfulness, that trusting in God, and that he wasn't buried, uh, but his body was placed in a sarcophagus, in a coffin, ready to be uh, taken back, ready to be taken back with the sons of Israel. So as we start into the book of Exodus, I want to talk about this theme of the Exodus, not the whole book of Exodus, but the theme of the Exodus today, and not so much go into all the details leading up to it, but to try to establish a framework of understanding, maybe, you know, give us Uh, a pair of lenses to look at the Exodus event and to understand its significance, where it fits into this thing that we call the salvation history and the outworking of God's promises. And then we can individually, in our own study, go through the details of the account that takes us really through the 14th chapter of Exodus and and, uh, examine those things on our own. So because this is a journey through the scriptures, I want to build out the storyline and again, look at the Exodus in in more principled terms, in general terms. Well, we've seen as far as even this journey through the scriptures, looking at what even is the story that the Bible is telling, that ultimately what it's recording for us is God's intent and the outworking of that intent to ultimately bring about the full consummative uh, fullness of the creation in relation to himself. And given this thing called the fall and the curse, God's design from that point forward has been to restore the created order with man at the center, restore the created order back to himself. And as God's relationship with his creation uh, is centered in man and man's own centrality, we talk about this concept of sacred space, the dwelling of God, but where God is in relation to his creation. Again, with man, the image bearer, the image son, uh, centered in the midst of that. And Paul says that ultimately this design of God towards which he's working all things is the summing up of everything in the created order in the resurrected, ascended, glorified, enthroned man who is Christ Jesus. And in that way then, as God sums up everything in him, he himself becomes all in all. Perfectly, exhaustively, intimately, 
woven into the fabric of his own creation as its Lord and its King, its loving sovereign. So we've seen in the the telling of that story and the working of it out and the way God builds the case for how he will do this restorative work. The, The flood was a kind of first new creation, a new beginning with a new Adam. Noah was like a new Adam. And God gave him the same creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So the flood effectively was a purging, a washing, a cleansing of the world that then was a new start, a fresh beginning and a fresh Adam, a new man. And later on down the road, because that new creation didn't ultimately deal with the curse, it didn't ultimately solve the problem of the cursed creation, God called a man to himself, Abraham, and made a covenant with him that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Ultimately, this restorative work would be bound up in Abraham. The Jewish rabbis, to my understanding, used to have a saying that said, God said, I will create Adam, and if he goes wrong and things go wrong in him, then I will call out Abraham and I'll put things right through him. And that's kind of a simple way of of expressing, again, even what we've seen to this point in the storyline. So as God called Abraham, he, he called him that, uh, to be the, the fountainhead of a particular new humanity uh, concerning whom God would be their God and they would be his people and they would dwell with him in a place that he had appointed. So God promised them the land of Canaan that even as we saw in, in Exodus 15, the Israelites understood to be God's sanctuary. The land of Canaan was not just a place. It was marked out as God's dwelling place where he would dwell with his people. And we'll see this even uh, after we get through the Exodus and, and beyond Sinai. So God pledged to Abraham that he would be the God of his descendants after him, that they would dwell with him in the place of his own habitation, but that this was not going to happen for a while that his descendants would be afflicted, they would be oppressed, they would even be enslaved over a period of 430 years, and then God would bring them out. Then he would gather them to himself. Then he would give them that sanctuary land. And the Exodus is at the center of that promise. So this promise of God has been delayed. Israel is now in exile, and the years are passing And we saw last time that that exile really began in a positive way as God's provision of life through Joseph. A famine had come on the whole Near Eastern world. And when the Israelites found out that there was grain in Egypt, the, the sons traveled there to purchase grain. And through two trips to Egypt, they ended up discovering that their brother Joseph had become ruler of all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And through that reunion and through the blessedness of uh, the provision in Egypt and and Joseph's lordship in Egypt, all of Jacob and his family ended up traveling to Egypt. And that's where Exodus finds us as we begin uh, the first chapter of Exodus. And and I'm just going to be skimming through this. We're not going to be reading all of it, but we're going to be picking out bits and pieces of it. So this exile began as a very positive thing. And we know that at the time that Joseph stood before Pharaoh, he was 30. And then there were seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. And somewhere during that seven years of famine, probably closer to the end as things got worse and worse, uh, that's when all the Israelites ended up coming to Egypt. So if you say Joseph was somewhere around 40 years old when his whole family came to be with him. Joseph died at 110. So there were approximately 70 years where Israel was really blessed in the land of Egypt. They dwelled in the land of Canaan. They had the richest grazing lands. Pharaoh said, whatever is yours, you may have. The whole land is open before you. So he, he uh, allowed Jacob or Joseph to bless his family for those seven decades or so. But then things changed. Joseph died. Another pharaoh arose who'd forgotten about Joseph, forgotten about all that. Now the tide starts to turn, and the exile becomes a matter of oppression and even subjugation, enslavement. 
the Hebrews become the slaves of the Egyptian people. But what the story tells us is that even in the midst of that hardship and that oppression, that deprivation, the people of Israel continue to increase. They continue to increase. They continue to thrive. And if you flip back to Genesis 46, recall last time when we we talked about Jacob leaving and how they departed the land from Beersheba and God met him there. And when God met him there, chapter 46 of Genesis, verse 2, God spoke to Israel, Jacob, in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. I am the covenant God of Abraham and Isaac. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make you a great nation there. Well, now the tide is turned and Israel is being severely persecuted, oppressed, deprived, starved, working, they're working these people to death. It's slave labor. And yet through all of that, they continue to increase in numbers. They continue to grow in the abundance of people and even in, in the, um, uh, the, the vitality of the people. And one thing I'll mention at this point is we often think, okay, there was this 400 years of slavery. There really wasn't. The actual time of the 430 years is from the time of the promise to Abraham. You see Paul speaking to this. From the promise of Abraham to the time of the Exodus was 430 years. The time in Egypt was only 215 years if you add up the generations all the way through to Moses. And I won't do that now, but we could talk about that another time. But the point is 215 years in Egypt, 70 of which at least was a time of blessing and ease. So probably this time of enslavement was somewhere and, and, and hard labor was somewhere around 100 to 125 years. And the reason for mentioning that is because in that short of a time, these people have exploded in numbers. That it, it's like almost a supernatural work of God to cause them in such a short time and under such severe circumstances to thrive and to become so numerous to the point that the Egyptians become afraid of them. These are powerless people. They have no weapons. They have no army. They're enslaved. And yet the Egyptians, one of the mightiest empires on the earth at that time, is afraid of them. They see something going on that's not natural or normal. And they worry that if these Israelites end up aligning themselves with uh, one of Egypt's enemies, because these nations, these empires were always at war, that they could end up being conquered if the Israelites become allies of their enemies. So you see them in this situation where the Egyptians see something going on with them and they're afraid of them. They're afraid of them. So Pharaoh decides to make their labors even more harsh, even more hard to try to decimate them. But the more that the Egyptians come against them, the more they thrive. And eventually what Pharaoh decides to do is to kill all the male babies of Israel, the Hebrew babies, the males. Eventually, you will destroy the nation if you kill all the male children, right? So little by little, he's, he's going to take them down that way. And it's in that context that Moses is born. But a point to make it at this point is that as God will send uh, Moses to Israel uh, in Egypt on the basis of their cries the Egyptians have recognized something that the Israelites themselves don't recognize. The Egyptians say there's something going on, there's some power, there's something, some remarkable, you know, who knows what God or whatever, but there is something remarkable going on preserving these people and enlarging them. As for the people themselves, they're despairing. And even as they cry out, as we'll see, the text doesn't say they cried out to God. They just cry out in their suffering. They cry out in their agony. And in fact, if you turn back to Ezekiel chapter 20, now this comes in the context of later on, far down the road, the southern kingdom of Judah has begun its own exile 
the first wave of exiles have gone to Babylon, including Ezekiel, and that's where he receives this word from the Lord. But it's God's base, it's his affirming that just as you're in exile now, look back to the former exile. And even though the people had abandoned me, even as they have abandoned me now, so I remembered them and I was faithful. And what's being communicated is I will be faithful again. This Babylonian exile will not be the final word. But the reason for reading this is just to make the point that Israel was not crying out to their God, trusting him, uh, still holding on to him in Egypt. Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It came about in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth of the month, that certain of the elders came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Now this again is in Babylon. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Do not come to inquire, or do you come to inquire of me? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them? Will you judge them, son of man? In other words, make them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. When I swore to them saying, I am Yahweh, your God. On that day, I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. And I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of your eyes. Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, for the sake of my covenant, for the sake of my faithfulness, not because of them, but because of me, that my name should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So the point of reading that is just to show that Israel did not remain faithful, even in that short time in Egypt. They forgot God. They forsook him, even to the point of embracing the gods of Egypt. So when they cry out in their suffering, they're not crying out to him. Who knows who they were crying out to? Maybe even just some generic God in their mind, or maybe just crying out in their agony without directing it to any particular entity. But in Exodus, it says that God heard their cries and he remembered his covenant. They'd forgotten him. He hadn't forgotten them. They had abandoned him. He hadn't abandoned them. He'd made his oath to Abraham that this period of of um, oppression, a period of even enslavement would come, but after that, I will bring them out. And though these years, these centuries have passed, God has not, he has not forgotten. So Israel's legacy of unfaithfulness and idolatry were firmly established in Egypt. The covenant son is an unfaithful son. And that would only continue after the Lord brought them back to the covenant land. We will see as soon as they, he brings them out of Egypt, no sooner do they sing the song of Moses than they begin their grumbling and their complaining, their ungratefulness, and even their desire to go back to Egypt. This unfaithfulness and idolatry will continue and only grow. But yet in all this, God remained faithful to his covenant and his purposes in it, and so remembered and tended to them even while they forsook him. And it's in this context now that we see Moses being raised up. And again, because the male children are being put to death, Moses is by his parents. We all know the story. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But, but he, he's put into a little ark, a little basket, and set into the river. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Through these providential circumstances, he's allowed to be nursed by his Hebrew mother. Then he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he becomes a prince of Egypt. 
And that's the way he's raised. But he's named Moshe, which means uh, the one who draws out because she drew him out of the masha, that, that verb means to draw out or to withdraw something. But Moshe means the one who draws. And it's interesting because he becomes the one who draws out the people on God's behalf. But even as a baby, God is already building the case for this. So God had chosen, preserved, and prepared a deliverer even before the people were crying out to him. Remember, God called Moses in the land of Midian. Moses, when he grew up, he went out, he saw the way his, uh, his Hebrew countrymen were being treated. He killed an Egyptian slave master. And then the next day, the word had gotten out, this had happened. He was afraid he fled to Midian. He spent 40 years in Midian, tending his father's sheep, raising a family, when God called him. So all of this preparation is going on behind the scenes. And at the time when God now remembers his covenant and responds to these cries and calls his deliverer, he calls him from Midian, this man that he set apart, prepared, even with all of his Egyptian background, and now he sends him back. And Moses is 80 when the sons of Israel leave Egypt. So once again, we see this issue of timing and the fact that that God works in a patient, methodical way, not according to our timetable. But while Israel is crying out abstractly for deliverance, God is already putting in place this deliverer. He remains faithful. And when, even in this dynamic of God meeting uh, with Moses on Mount Horeb and the burning bush and all of that, Moses says, when the people say, who is this God? Who is this God that you're coming? What shall I tell them? Tell them I am. I am, the, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you to them. And this idea of I am doesn't mean that God is, is an eternal being. It's the idea that he is the faithful one. He's unchanging. I am who I am. I don't change in my purposes, in my promises, in my faithfulness. I am ever faithful. And that was to be an encouragement to the sons of Israel. He goes back, Moses goes back to the people and he tells them the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has heard, he's remembered, and he sent me to deliver you. Who is this God? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name is I am. And that becomes the covenant name of God. I am is Echia in Hebrew, but Yahweh, as we pronounce it, is Israel saying he is. And that was the name that God went by. He is. He says, I am, and they say he is. And that means they're rehearsing every time they mention that, that he's the faithful God. He remains unchanged. Whatever they do, wherever they go, whatever their unfaithfulness, he remains faithful. And this obviously becomes a huge theme in Paul's thinking, right? As an Israelite, as he considers the pinnacle of God's faithfulness in the Messiah. So that's kind of the background of the Exodus. We see then as Moses goes back again and tells the people, they end up disbelieving him because of the, initially they rejoice, but then Pharaoh starts making their work more arduous. And then they're like, why did you come here, Moses? You've only made it worse for us. We wish you hadn't showed up. It was bad enough before. Now it's really bad. And through this process now of Moses and Aaron interacting with Pharaoh, you see Pharaoh's opposition. And you see the magicians of Egypt able to do some of the same signs that Moses does. As it progresses, eventually, these magicians are not able to do those things. And so Pharaoh begins to think, hey, there's something powerful at work here that I can't push back against. And yet, each time that Moses calls back these plagues under Pharaoh's request, Pharaoh hardens himself again. He doesn't want to lose his slave labor for obvious reasons, right? They're building his empire. He doesn't want to lose his slave labor. But eventually, through nine plagues, we come to this tenth plague, the last and the greatest plague, which God had said from the beginning, I will do. If you turn to chapter 4 of Exodus... 
So it's, it's, again, this is all laid out by God ahead of time. Even holding Pharaoh in this place of opposition is according to God's intent. He's not just reacting to whatever happens to come. So in chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, this is before he's left, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And that becomes the 10th plague, right? The plague of the firstborn. Where God sends out his angel to kill all of the firstborn of Egypt, whether human beings or their animals, their cattle, all of the firstborn males are killed. But that's where the Passover thing comes about because they have prepared now for four days by selecting a lamb, preparing it. Now they sacrifice it on the 14th day. They take the blood and they put it on the doorposts and the lintel. And when the angel of death passes through the land of Egypt, he passes over the Israelite houses. They're exempted from the plague. And that's the plague that breaks Pharaoh's back. Initially, Pharaoh said, okay, your men can go, but everybody else has to stay. Then he says, okay, your men and your children can go, but your animals have to stay. Then now he says, take it all. Go. Go. Take it all. So through the, the God taking to himself the firstborn of Egypt, the people are liberated. And out of that comes the law of the firstborn, which is that every firstborn male that passes out of the womb in Israel belongs to the Lord. If it's an unclean animal, it's to be sacrificed or it's to be put to death. If it's a clean animal, it's to be sacrificed as an offering. And that we'll get to all of that. If it's if it's a child, he has to be redeemed. If it's a Levite, he belongs to the Lord already. But the firstborn of Israel belongs to the Lord. And that law of the firstborn was a constant reminder that God has taken the firstborn of Israel to himself through the taking of the firstborn of Egypt. So that's how the Passover comes about. And the Passover becomes absolutely fundamental, just as the Exodus itself the Passover, which is kind of the, the, the hinge point in the, in the Exodus event, they become probably the most significant historical events in, in, in the life of Israel as they point to and anticipate this work that is to come. And as I said last time, it's no coincidence that Jesus chose Passover for the time of his self-offering. He didn't choose the Day of Atonement, which is what we would maybe naturally think. He chose Passover. Because from the time of the Passover, this work of God, this mighty work of God in delivering his people, bringing them through and, and through the sea in, in this deliverance, uh, and gathering them to himself becomes the great promise of a future day when he will do that in, in a complete and grand and glorious way. And we'll see that as we look at Isaiah, the promise of a second exodus. So then in terms of the significance of this, okay, what do we do with this? How do we understand it? Well, first of all, there is a historical significance, which I've just kind of alluded to a little bit, uh, which is that the exodus and all that surrounded it was really fundamental to Israel's understanding of itself, who they were what it meant to be the covenant people of God, how they understood their relationship with God, how they understood the, con the continuance of their relationship with God, how they understood their role in God's purposes. They weren't just a nation. They were the election of God for the sake of the world, ultimately for the sake of the whole creation. And so this theme becomes primary in Israel's scriptures. As I say, the one who had risen on God's beha or on behalf of God's covenant people, this God who had risen to redeem and liberate the heirs of the covenant from their bondage and restore them to himself would do so again. That's what Ezekiel's getting at. 
the people of, of Judah, the remnant of David's kingdom, are in exile, and more exile is, is to come, and the city is to be burned, and the temple is to be destroyed. But that won't be the final word. A new exile is coming, or a new liberation from exile is coming, and then ultimately even that Babylonian recovery from exile is not the true recovery from exile. There's another yet to come, a greater redemptive work that would be final, fully effectual, and creation-wide. So in terms of its historical significance, the Exodus set the stage for God's fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant as it regarded his uh, natural descendants. When God sent Moses to Egypt, he said, tell the people, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've remembered my covenant. Now is the time when I will bring them out, when they will plunder the Egyptians as I promised, when I will give them the land that I promised to their fathers. So the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise depended on and flowed out of this thing that we call the Exodus. That's the way in which they inherited the covenant land and its promises. That's also why the Exodus is treated as the birth of the nation. The Passover now becomes the occasion for God to say, this is now going forward the first month in your calendar. I'm I'm orienting your whole calendar around this liberation from Egypt. In, In a sense, this is a new birth. This is the beginning of your history now. The birth of Israel is covenant son. And there are Now the the trajectory is towards Sinai. That's the focal point of the Exodus. That's where they're going. Remember, God had said to Moses, Moses, the burning bush thing was on the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. And God said, when I bring you out, then you will meet with me on this mountain. You will worship me here. So immediately, as soon as they leave Egypt, they start heading for Horeb, Mount Sinai, according to, again, this purpose of God. The, the movement of the Exodus is straight to Sinai because that's the place where God's going to ratify the covenant relationship with Abraham's descendants. The covenant at Sinai is not a new covenant. You know, okay, we had the covenant with Abraham. Now here's another covenant that we call uh, the, the law of Moses or the covenant at Sinai. All that Sinai was, was God covenantally ratifying the Abrahamic relationship with the descendants of Abraham. He reintroduced himself to them in Egypt. He called them back to himself. He chose them, as it were, again, a new election in Egypt, reestablished his relationship with them, brought them to Sinai, where he covenantally ratified that relationship. So in a sense, they became, in a bona fide way, uh, covenant sons of Abraham at Sinai. That's what Sinai was all about. But ultimately, because Israel's election and its calling pertain to the whole of the cursed creation, beyond that historical significance of the Exodus is the salvation historical significance, the role that it played in the outworking of God's larger purposes. This purpose to gather up everything in his son so that he himself would become all in all. So the exodus out of Egypt had its premise in the Abrahamic covenant. We saw that in Genesis 15. You will be enslaved and and oppressed for 400 years, then I will gather you to myself. The Abrahamic covenant was the premise of the exodus, and the focal point was the Passover, and then it moves towards Sinai where this this can be ratified. But all of that was ultimately a prefiguration, a prophetic prototype, if you will, of a second exodus in which God, through his messianic servant king, would deliver not just the household of Israel, but the human race and the created order from its bondage and establish his presence and rule in the earth as he had purposed from the beginning. If you look in Isaiah, really 40 through the end of the of the book is all kind of centered in this messianic figure and what God will do through him. The four servant songs are in that section. 
But 49 is where God promises a servant who he calls Israel, a servant Israel in whom Israel will be liberated and delivered and saved and who will also become a covenant of the nations. It's not enough that you should be my servant on behalf of the houses of Israel, but you shall take my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's chapter 49. And then in 50, God says, I'm not divorcing Israel. The context in Isaiah historically is the exiles are coming very shortly. The exile of the northern kingdom is within a generation. The southern kingdom will be about 140 years after that. But both houses of Israel are going into exile. But God says this isn't going to be the last word. I'm not divorcing Israel altogether. I'm stripping her of her children. I'm sending her away, but I will bring her back. So if you look in chapter 51, then, as we read through this, look at all of these ideas and the echoes of them that are in this this word of the Lord. 51.1, Isaiah, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. What was the rock from which they were hewn? Abraham. Look to Abraham, your father, to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him, and I blessed him, and I multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will again comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of melody. And then if you jump forward to verse 9, and we see in verse 9, and then again in verse 17, and then in 52.1, you see this pattern of a repeated refrain, awake, awake. Then in 17, awake or rouse yourself, rouse yourself. And then in 52.1, awake, awake. But there's a progress in this call to wake up or to rouse yourself. And the first is a new exodus, verse 9 of 51. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. This is calling Yahweh to awake, to arise and to bring about another great redemption, a new exodus, just as he has been promising from the time of the exodus. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Wasn't it you who cut Rahab in pieces? Rahab is Egypt. Who pierced the dragon? Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? And so the ransomed of Yahweh will return again and come with joyful shouting to Zion. Everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I, I, even I am the one who comforts you. So who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who's made like grass? Jump down to verse 14. The exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, for his bread will not be lacking. For I am Yahweh, your God, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Now the second, rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Now it's a call to uh, Jerusalem, to Zion to arise. Because you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, that is now going to pass from you. If you, I'm just trying to not read through all of this, but down to verse 20. Your sons have fainted. They lay helpless at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. This is what you've endured because of your unfaithfulness, because of your unbelief. You have endured God's wrath against you. You have gone into exile. But verse 21, but please hear this, you afflicted who are drunk, but not with wine, staggering, reeling under the Lord's hand. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, even your God who contends for his people, behold, I've taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. Again, the echoes of Israel's previous exile, their subjugation, and now God bringing them out. And then finally, 52.1, awake, awake, 
Now another call to Zion. The first awake to Zion is take heed. This cup of God's judgment is being taken from you and it will never come upon you again. Now there's the call to Zion to celebrate and adorn herself in her renewal. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourselves from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Yahweh, again, these are all God referring to himself under his covenant name. The name that means I am. I will be faithful. I will keep my covenant. You were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. Thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Again, the exile of the northern kingdom that's coming. Therefore, now what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. He says, those who rule over them howl and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. But my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know, they will hear and know I am the one who is speaking and saying, here I am. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. The gospel. You want to know what the gospel is? It's this, the good news How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, who brings good news of felicity, happiness, delightfulness, who announces deliverance is the idea and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He has bared his holy arm in the sight of the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And then in chapter 53, we have the last of the servant songs that we all know about this servant who offers himself up for the sake of the people. And through his sacrifice now comes this renewal, comes this restored favor. And so in chapter 54 is the promise of Zion's restoration. She was stripped of her children. Zion representing the covenant household, the covenant entity that bore sons and daughters for God. And they were unfaithful. He took them away. He sent Zion away. But now when he restores her, more will be the children of the restored Zion than of the barren woman, such that she will have to enlarge her habitation to take in all the sons and daughters that will come to her from all of the earth. And then in 55, the word goes out, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to me. Right? Come to me. Why spend your money for that which doesn't satisfy? You buy bread that doesn't satisfy. Come and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to my faithful mercies to David. So that's the way this Isianic story is told. And at the center of it is exile, promise of exodus, but ultimately bound up in the servant himself. So that's how the exodus itself becomes prophetic. And the promise, when you hear people speak about the promise of a second exodus, that's what they're talking about. This exodus becomes a fundamental theme, as it were, kind of a, a, a pin stuck in the board of God's demonstrated faithfulness and the promise that he will prove faithful again. He will prove faithful again. And that's now what we see in the Song of Moses that we read earlier. God had delivered Israel Not as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but as Yahweh, the covenant God, I am. The one who in himself is faithful, regardless of the fact that his people had forgotten him and forsaken him. It didn't matter what they did. He was going to keep covenant because he's faithful. Paul says, let God be true, though every man is a liar. Let God be true. He's the covenant God and father. He would redeem his elect son in order to gather him to himself. Israel is my son, my only begotten son. I will deliver him. 
And so the Song of Moses reveals that God's goal in redeeming his son was covenant fellowship grounded in covenant love, this idea of chesed or loving kindness and maintained by covenant integrity and faithfulness. And I put this quote by Dumbrell in here because it's an important point. He says this word chesed, the Hebrew word that speaks of covenant love or covenant faithfulness, is, doesn't pertain to the establishment of a relationship, but reflects faithfulness and loyalty to an existing relationship. Israel had walked away from God and forgotten him, but he hadn't walked away from them. He hadn't forgotten. So he wasn't establishing whole cloth, a new relationship. He was simply reinstating or, or renewing this relationship with the people who'd forgotten him according to his chesed, his covenant love. The aim of the chesed exhibited is to preserve the tenor of the relationship which already exists. The Lord would bring them out of Egypt, not to set them free and let them go their way, but to bring them to himself. The Lord has delivered us to bring us to his holy mountain, to bring us to his sanctuary. So just in summary then, in closing, the Exodus is itself another symbolic new creation. As I said, Israel's whole calendar was oriented around the Exodus, the Passover specifically. It was the birth of a new image son appointed to rule God's dwelling place in his name for his sake as a faithful priest king. We're going to see three months out, Israel arrives at Sinai and God says, if you will keep my covenant, then you will be to me what? A kingdom of priests, right? And all of this is echoes of Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? Again, the purpose of God the purpose for creation, the purpose for man at the center of creation. What he's doing with Israel is building the case for, again, this intent and his faithfulness to it. He's given birth to a new image son. Israel is my image son, appointed to rule my dwelling place in my name and for my sake as a faithful priest king. And so the Exodus had its basis, its meaning, and its goal in God's intent for his creation to become sacred space. That's what you see in Revelation 21 and 22, the whole creation becoming a sanctuary, right? The merging of the heavenly space and the creational space, the earth. So the Exodus specifically looked towards Canaan, which represented God's new garden sanctuary, The language of Canaan describes it in that way, a land of milk and honey, flowing in abundance, cities you don't build, wells you don't dig, fields you don't cultivate, an abundant, profuse place, a kind of new garden sanctuary. But we'll see very quickly, Canaan would fall short, even as Israel has already failed and will continue to fail as image son. So the Exodus ultimately then fulfilled its purpose by enlarging and advancing the promise of another day, another day like it, but another day that would actually bring to full fruition what it spoke of. So everywhere that we are in the Old Testament, our eyes should keep looking forward to the day of the coming of the Messiah. And when we interpret Christ and we interpret his work, it has to be through the lens of this story and its features and its components. If we don't know the Old Testament story, at the very most we can say is that our understanding of Christ and his work is greatly impoverished and perhaps even incorrect. Because he's the one in whom all of these things become yes and amen. That's why I wanted to read that, ex, or that Isaiah context, because even though it was kind of long, and there's much more to it even than what we read, it, it's centered in this promise of a servant, the Davidic branch who will come. But it's all exodus, it's all exile, it's all redemption, it's all passing through the sea to be with God and his inheritance, all centered in this one who is to come, who gathers in the whole world to himself. So it's glorious, but again, this is the way that we need to read this story. And it'd be like if you were reading a biography. If you're on page 20, your your brain is automatically reading that page in the light of what you've already read in the story. And you're anticipating what's coming next, right? Or if you watch some epic documentary or you know epic film or something, each stage of it 
is building on what's already there and looking towards what comes next. You don't just freeze frame the movie and, and analyze what the characters are doing sitting there still on the screen, right? You can't understand any particular scene except in relation to the whole, and it's the same. So as we're moving through this journey, I hope that we're becoming more and more able to think that way and read the details in the light of the big story that it's telling. Let me close in prayer then, and we'll then close in song. Father, I hope and I pray that you will minister these things to each one. And, And I know they can sometimes feel overwhelming. It can seem like a whole lot to try to take in and digest. But this is the story that you have told. This is the way that you have determined to accomplish this great design for your creation. This is the way you chose to work out that design. This is the way in which through the centuries, through the millennia, you were working and building and creating a case for what would come in Jesus our Lord. And as those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, I pray that being most privileged in that way, to be able to look back at these things through the lens of the person and the work of Christ, these things should be especially clear and especially glorious to us. As the Hebrews writer said, all who went before the coming of the Messiah died in faith, seen dimly with eyes that could only glimpse the future, the day of this great triumph. And they couldn't connect all the dots, but they died in faith, trusting you. But now they are made complete together with us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so, Father, help us to be a truly biblical people and in that way to be a truly Christ-centered people, a people who testify of him truthfully, a people who bear his fragrance in truth, a people who testify to the world of this great God that we celebrate and whose praises we sing. So give each one the grace of minds to think, of capacity to study and to focus, to be prayerful, to be diligent. Grant them the liberty of time. Grant them the freedom of mind and distraction. Grant them the capacity to grow in these things that each of us, Father, would grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. And we ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.